Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, it seems like every time Ignite Seattle hits a stage, we ask, have you been to one of these? Always fun and informative. You should put it on your Seattle bucket list. But until that day comes, listen in to your fellow citizens' brave and inspiring efforts to share their ideas with hundreds of friendly strangers. The Ignite phenomenon started in Seattle in 2006 and spread around the world. Volunteers run the show. The concept is simple. You have five minutes, 20 slides, and a microphone with which to share an insight or idea. The results are always genuinely informative and sometimes especially moving. This event took place on March 1st at SIF Cinema Egyptian. Sonia Harris recorded the talks. Ignite Seattle 36 is coming up on May 17th. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Really just one word. Here, MC Scott Birkin introduces the first speaker. Our first talk involves animals. How many of you have an animal? How many of you are animals? Okay. All right. We may need to rethink this program. Okay. So the, our opening speaker is going to talk about free accommodations worldwide thanks to neurotic dogs. Please welcome Sylvana Clark to the stage. At this very moment, the <laughs> this very moment, The owners of that chateau in France are looking for someone to stay at their house for three months. All you have to do is feed their dog. In return, you live in an 18th century chateau. You could couch surf or you could stay at a hotel, but why not stay someplace free? Homeowners are looking for people to take care of their pets, and why shouldn't that be you? My husband and I call ourselves the house-sitting hermit crabs. <laughs> because we weasel our way into different homes around the world. And we stayed in this place for two months that the owner described as a charming cottage. You also get unique experiences. We got to join a knitting group with 20 women in England who now live in Spain. You don't get that at a Holiday Inn. And what's best is house sittings are easy to find. The site I use, Trusted House Sitters, gives me 20 house sits every day, twice a day and simply you craft a letter and then you can get accepted. Now when you're writing your letter, please make sure that you do not write that you want to stay in a cabin in Costa Rica so that you can party. You want to write this like your college application and make sure you sound responsible. So how many of you have ever unplugged a toilet? <laughs> then you can write on your application that you're skilled in home repairs. After you email your application, you wait to be selected. We once were selected in 10 minutes. It's true, the person who selected us was a wacky lady in Portugal who wanted us to take care of her two donkeys. We didn't tell her we were pretty sure these two were horses. <laughs> once you're selected, you move into the owner's house just like a hermit crab. The first thing we do is we take pictures of all the cupboards because some people are very neat and we are not quite that neat. 
Now be prepared for pets with idiosyncrasies. Dude will only relieve himself after a one-hour walk. But we live 20 minutes from downtown London with him. So we take him for a long walk and then head off to see a London show, which was great. These two dogs look normal, but they see a pet therapist because they don't play with dog toys. And the owners also wanted us to contact them twice a day with updates on what the dog were doing. So we took this picture with the caption that said, Rufus and Sophie decided to join the circus. The owners called us in a panic and said, did the dogs really join the circus? Many homeowners will even leave you their cars. So after taking care of pets in the morning, you hop in the car and go off on a day trip. Also, be aware that you're going to have some situations that arise. In France, it rained so hard that the drains clogged and we lost electricity. But my husband went out and he squeegeed and we got our power back. Now, I am not recommending that you combine water and electricity if any of you do house sits. You also want to be alert. A certain couple didn't pay attention and these two dogs destroyed some books and valuable photographs. We won't mention any names there. One of the advantages also of house sitting is that it takes place in the United States. Our daughter lives in DC, so we got a six week house sit there with these two dogs who would pee on the carpet if they got the least bit excited. So we walked around like slow motion robots. Now in England, someone is actually looking to take, for someone to take care of Muggsy the Hedgehog. It's not unusual to be asked to take care of iguanas or rabbits or donkeys that are actually horses. You save money in other ways. Our six-week house sit in Australia, that lady even decorated for us and we didn't have to buy a Christmas tree. Plus, there was plenty of room for our daughter when she came to visit. So if you're interested in living like a local, try house sitting. You can pick from a penthouse in Paris or a chalet in Austria. You might even get to ride on a parade float in Spain. On the other hand, you might find yourself as a house sitter customizing a large purse so you can make a Johnny jump up to rehabilitate a paralyzed rooster like we did. to a good start here tonight at Night Seattle 35. We certainly are. Now, we have a micro theme for the first two talks, which involves animals. So our next talk also involves an animal. And the last rooster purse thing, it's not all that far off the mark about the animal involved. So next up, running a hummingbird food bank. Please welcome Laurel Zenobi to the stage. I have a pet hummingbird that lives in my backyard. I decided to name him Jerry, and I figured if we were gonna be friends, I should learn a little bit about him. So Jerry's species is known as an Anna's hummingbird, and one of the first things I learned about Jerry is how to tell the difference between males and females. Males have bright red heads, 
Females have just a little bit of red on their neck, if at all. Both clearly have an excellent sense of humor. <laughs> Having learned this, I realized we've made a big mistake. Jerry's not actually a he. <laughs> Jerry's a she. But, you know, it's fine. We'll just spell her name differently. She doesn't know the difference. Then a second hummingbird started showing up, and I thought, oh, Jerry got herself a husband. I was really excited. No, it turns out we're just really bad at sexing hummingbirds. The second hummingbird was also a female. But, you know, Jerry got herself a wife. It's 2018 in Seattle. <laughs> you do you, Jerry. I'm not judging. Another thing that I learned about Jerry is that she is one of four hummingbird species that lives in the Pacific Northwest, but she's the only one that doesn't seem to have enough sense to migrate south for the winter. Part of the reason for this might be, like many of us, Jerry's not actually from here. <laughs> Surprise. In fact, prior to the 1940s, you couldn't find Jerry north of the Bay Area. Now, I don't know, maybe the hummingbird housing market got a little hot, but <laughs> for whatever reason, Jerry decides to continue migrating north. She arrives in Seattle by 1964 and has been sharing her winters with us ever since. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yet another California transplant. Like any good SoCal girl, Jerry is like not particularly well adapted to surviving our winters. Uh, full grown, she weighs about as much as a nickel, needs to eat about half of her body weight in food every day just to get by. And she can burn all of that food reserve in one night just trying to stay warm. So for Jerry and her kind during our winters, they're kind of constantly on the verge of starvation. She has a couple of different strategies to get through this. One is to enter a state of torpor, which is sort of like a short-term hibernation that allows her to conserve calories, kind of get through those cold periods. During torpor, she can reduce her body temperature from 104 degrees down to 48 degrees Fahrenheit. I know, right? And she can slow her respiration from 245 breaths per minute down to six. Now, Jerry can get by on tree sap, insects, the occasional winter garden, but during winter, her primary food source is actually us. It's the hummingbird feeders that we leave out. So how can we help keep Jerry from starving? <laughs> well, the first thing you can do is get a hummingbird feeder. The perfect recipe for a hummingbird feeder food is one part sugar to four parts water. And you don't want to do a higher concentration of sugar as that can actually damage Jerry's kidney and liver. Um, you also want to keep it clean and you know, mold, mildew, those will make Jerry sick, so let's avoid that. She's got a hard enough time during the winter as is. Uh, if your hummingbird feeder freezes overnight, make sure to bring it in. The morning after a really cold snap is when Jerry will need that liquid fuel more than ever. So bring it in, let it thaw, put it back out for Jerry's breakfast, it'll all be good. The second thing that we can all do to help Jerry is to plant a hummingbird garden. Jerry really likes red and yellow flowers, those are her favorite colors. Bonus points if you plant a winter garden, flowers that'll bloom during the winter for her to eat. You'll want to try to plant flowers that bloom over different periods of time so you can provide Jerry with a longer food source over a longer period of time. Um, fuchsia, honeysuckle, jasmine, salmonberry, all of these are excellent food sources for Jerry. Jerry's favorite in my backyard right now is actually rosemary, so keep in mind they're, they're not too picky. They'll, they'll eat almost anything. So what can we learn from these awesome little magical creatures? Well, winters in Seattle can be kind of tough, as we all know. This has been a pretty tough one for me and, and some of the people close to me. 
So sometimes we just need to sit back and appreciate the magic of the season. Even if the magic of the season comes in the form of a tiny avian helicopter that doesn't quite have enough sense to fly south to warmer weather. Maybe she doesn't have the Alaska Airlines card, I don't know. <laughs> Another thing is that Jerry can teach us to remember to care for others, and that even those that aren't from here can find their niche with just a little bit of help. So I want everyone here to go home and start running their own hummingbird food bank. It's really easy to set up. The maintenance is very low. And if you're interested, I'm happy to help you get started. Come see me during intermission. I have about 10 hummingbird feeders that I am willing to part with so that you can all run your own hummingbird food bank. Thank you. Dude, free hummingbird feeders. You had no idea when you came tonight you'd be offered a free hummingbird feeder, much less you'd be motivated to get one. So kudos to Laurel for that. Next up, a fantastic title. We judge our submissions heavily on the quality of the titles. This is a good one. What government bureaucracy taught me about creativity. Hmm. Please welcome Joel Ferris to the stage. You are creative. I know that because you're at Ignite, so obviously, right? But also because you're human, except for the few of you who are animals. But chances are most of you don't actually believe that about yourselves. In fact, research shows that while 70% of us believe that creativity is critical to our future, only 20% of us actually ever realize our creative potential. And why is that? Why is creativity so hard? What gets in the way of good creativity? What gets in the way of realizing our own creativity? These are questions that I've long wrestled with and, and asked myself over and over again as, as I've worked mostly in my career in creative roles. And these are questions that I find are really important, not just for people in the creative industry, but for all of us as, as humans who like to create and make things. And so these questions became especially acute for me uh, in 2016 when I joined uh, the mayor's office here in Seattle to work for city government. It was my first time working in the public sector and it was really a privilege and it was an amazing opportunity. I, I had the chance to meet some really brilliant and passionate public servants who have dedicated their lives to improving our city and life for its citizens. And I gained a lot of respect for what it means to work in government and what it means to work in that kind of environment and to work in a bureaucracy. I never thought I would be someone who worked in a bureaucracy. But interestingly enough, it was a very challenging two years working in government, coming from a private sector background for tech companies primarily and switching into this environment totally flipped things upside down for me. And so in spending two years there, I really didn't know how to thrive and how to flourish. And it took me a while to find my, my footing. But those two years gave me the opportunity to really begin answering these questions because for the first time, I was able to see where creativity was really thriving in some pockets and where it wasn't in others. And what were the factors that were contributing to the positive conditions and the negative conditions. And so I wanna share with you four insights tonight, two that are uh, characteristics of bureaucracy that are negative, and two things that I found positive for creating good creative culture. 
Number one, opposition to risk. Opposition to risk, of course, in government is a positive thing, right? They need to be good stewards of our tax dollars, of our resources, and they need to do what they can to manage those things. Of course, need to manage risk. But it goes beyond the systems and the processes of checks and balances. And when what you get is a, what you get is a culture of a value system and, and a worldview and a belief that risk in itself is innately dangerous. And so this essentially, um, it completely uh, um, creates an environment where new ideas can't actually find soil to plant themselves in. And so in a culture that's oriented around this opposition to risk, sameness is rewarded over change and consistency is incentivized over divergence. Number two, hierarchy. Now, I'm not here to sell flat systems or any of that sort of holacracy, but hierarchy is about a chain of command, right? And in a chain of command, decision-making rests with the top. And so in a hierarchy, if you're not a decision-maker, you're not incentivized to act on your own intuition. And so what hierarchy does fundamentally is it subverts your ability to act on your own intuition, to make decisions autonomously, and essentially, it removes and negates any sense of self-agency and self-efficacy in really stacked hierarchical environments. Now, the thing is, these are realities that we all face, right? It, these things, opposition to risk and hierarchy, aren't unique just to government. These are realities that we all face every day. And so what are two things that we can do within these contexts to begin championing creativity? And really quick, two things. The first is belonging. See, belonging is about safety. Belonging is about recognizing there's something in you that's intrinsically valuable that we desire and we want here beyond your pedigree and your resume. Belonging is about uh, embracing and recognizing the messiness of the human condition and saying, all of you is welcome here. And belonging is critical, right, because you need that safety. And so finally, the last thing is trust. Trust is absolutely critical because the act of creativity is fundamentally about doing something, bringing something into existence that doesn't exist yet. Which means when you begin that journey and you don't know the destination, you need to put trust in the person next to you, not in the outcome. And so if you can champion belonging and you can champion trust, I believe that you can find an opportunity to flourish in bureaucratic environments. Thank you. As some of you may have noticed, we live in polarizing times. We have a difficult administration that many of you and myself do not like, but we've seen a response to that that I think is encouraging. We have the Women's March, the Me Too movement, and if you are applauding for that, I think you'll be inspired by this really strong next talk, which has a wonderful title. Bias-proofing business, broom closets, and boardrooms. Please welcome Sarah Sanford to the stage. Six years ago, I quit my nonprofit job and had my first interview for a corporate position. The staffing agency said I would only meet with a woman who would potentially be my boss, but during the interview, this tall, broad-shouldered man interrupted and asked to steal me for a second. He walked me into what appeared to be a broom closet, 
and asked me if I had plans to have kids anytime soon. I stuttered a, no, sir, and he said, good, because the last thing we need around here is another mother. I said nothing. I got the job. There was one mother in the 40-person office. The man who walked me into the closet was the company president, and I said nothing, because I knew somehow that I was a guest in a place that wasn't meant for me. The word feminist was still in accusation then, and now it's the opening salvo of Beyonce's Super Bowl halftime shows. If I'm not talking about gender, I'm overhearing someone who is. And I confess that even I can get overwhelmed by the talk. So I'm not giving you any more whys for gender parity tonight. But I am here to share a new how. Because currently, US businesses are spending $8 billion a year on inclusion trainings that Harvard Business Review says don't work and actually backfire. For men of color and women in management, trainings actually made things worse. Despite best intentions, they failed to address one critical area, systemic bias. We all have bias. It's lodged in our amygdala. It keeps ticking away when we go to work. It affects how much I like you, what I believe you're capable of, and even how much space I think you take up. The Gina Davis Institute conducted a study on crowds and found that when women make up 17% of a group, they're perceived as comprising half the group. When we hit 33% female, they're perceived as the majority. If we all have bias, our workplaces need to be actively anti-bias by design to ensure room for everyone. A 47% female workforce is a fairly new phenomenon. Was the workplace ever redesigned for them? If we put part of that $8 billion towards inclusive redesign, what would that look like? Let's explore a couple possibilities. Who in here has ever filled out a job app that asked your gender, race, other demographic info at the beginning? It turns out when women are asked to state their gender before completing a job app or skills test, they actually perform worse than women who are never asked. Quick fix for debiasing the job app, take that gender box, move it to the very end of the application to avoid activating self-stereotyping bias. Example two, Fortune Magazine reviewed performance evals across industries and found criticism like this related to personality but not job-related skills appeared in 76% of yearly reviews received by women and 3% of yearly reviews received by men. But in businesses that conduct much shorter but highly frequent reviews, five-minute weekly evaluations focused on specific projects, the personality criticism vanishes, and the perceived performance gap between men and women is nearly non-existent. While yearly reviews rely largely on overall impressions, which are like petri dishes for bias, short, objectively focused evaluations eliminate this feelings-based gray area. At Gen, we've identified over 100 of these cultural levers that can be adjusted to counter the impact of bias by changing environments rather than mindsets. We use this data to help organizations achieve gender parity. And we're also using it for something bigger. Later this year, we will launch the GEN certification. This will be the first certification for gender parity in the US workplace. This <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> This benchmark looks beyond the onstage version of businesses to incorporate the mechanics of behind-the-scenes cultural design. 
you were the first public audience to hear about this, and we need your help. We have what behavioral science can tell us, but human experience is just as crucial, and we need to hear across all genders from all of you. If you go to thinkgen.org and take the survey, you'll be part of creating the gold standard for gender equity in the US workplace. The gen certification will hold businesses accountable and reward leaders that go beyond just pinkwashing their advertising to embracing truly inclusive design. With no excuses left, time is up. It's time to take talent out of the broom closet and into the spotlight. It's time for gender equity now. Thank you and happy first day of Women's History Month. So if, if you were inspired by what they're doing, you can go to their website, you can donate, take the survey, of course, but you can donate and help them with their cause. So one of the themes of the next talk is about recognizing that everything we interact with in our daily lives was designed by someone, and they designed it with a certain intent or not. And that intent can be manipulated if we choose to, especially if we choose to start paying attention to it. So the next talk is Swinging on the Lamppost, Designing for Play in the Modern City. Please welcome Colin McDonald to the stage. Whether you think about it or not, we all spend a lot of time in public spaces. Walking down the sidewalk, standing at a plaza, checking your snaps, or sitting on a park bench waiting for your kid to finish soccer practice. I never thought deeply about these spaces or ever imagined I'd have a hand in designing them before I started doing parkour. <laughs> Don't worry, this isn't a talk where I tell you that you can achieve enlightenment by leaping between skyscrapers. But all of us, seriously, everyone, can find enjoyment climbing on things they think they probably shouldn't, can find a new layer of our city to appreciate, and can be an advocate for better, more playful public spaces in the future. In my mind, a good public space has three jobs. First, it should be functional. If it needs to move people from one train to another, it had better do that seamlessly and without bottlenecks. Second, it should be beautiful. You should feel good when you're in it. Turn your head to look at it as you walk by. And, and let me be clear, a beautiful functional space is already a pretty high bar, but it's not enough. A good space should also be active. Something about it should engage you as you pass through it. Grab your attention, make you miss your bus. You can do this with art, with sound, music, even with the setting of the space itself, but I like to do it with physical play. See, we're really good at compartmentalizing exercise and play. Even those of us who work out regularly do so in a specific place for a set amount of time and often a little begrudgingly. Playgrounds, and hell, even parkour parks, are amazing spaces for play, but they exist in labeled, defined areas. You're never gonna stumble into one. Play that is defined and anticipated in this way lacks this crucial element of, let's say, cheerful transgression that the best play possesses. I want moments of play, of physical exploration, to leap out at you and grab five minutes of your day, like a partner pulling you onto the dance floor. So this is our conundrum, or at least my conundrum. How do we evoke and encourage play from a sometimes reluctant public 
without explicitly demanding play and ruining all the fun. The best way, maybe the only way I know how to do this, is through the design and the shape of the spaces themselves. First, parkour and movement play is all about creating connections and drawing lines between obstacles. If your site furniture is spaced too far apart, those connections just get harder to make. Second, variety in everything, shape, height, spacing, angle. For example, in a lot of plazas, you won't see anything above 16, 18 inches high, the height of a seat wall. Even if no one's jumping around, people enjoy sitting up on things of different heights. So throw in a couple walls, even if you don't have to. Third, use shapes that encourage a little deviancy. Angled surfaces can be bounced off of or slid down. Curves draw the eye and invite touch. And a sturdy bar positioned just above head height begs to be hung from or swung on. And look, I know, most of us are not in a position where we can make these design decisions ourselves. But we can all appreciate them when we see them out in the wild and then advocate for them in the future. Every time SDOT or Seattle Parks build something new, they have a public interest meeting, sometimes a few. Go to those meetings, please go to those meetings and ask for things like this. <laughs> wait, 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 don't say parkour. Parkour is scary. Don't say playground either, that has a very specific connotation, very specific limitations. Be more general, say active, fitness, whimsical, intergenerational play. That's a really good one. But finally, and this is important, the best designed public space in the world still is not a playful space without people actually playing on it. <laughs> this part's up to you. It's up to you, it's up to all of us to make sure that play isn't confined to the playground and exercise confined to the gym. So go out there, balance on the handrails, vault over the benches, and swing on the lampposts. Thank you. He just finished in like four minutes and 30 seconds, which I think you get extra bonus points for that, for sure. How many of you have a half million dollars? Some of you, okay. You should be paying more for your tickets then. How many of you wish you had half a million dollars? All right, okay. Well, this next talk's gonna get, no, it's not gonna happen. That's not what we're gonna do. But we all know, we all have questions and suspicions about how money influences politics. And in this state, with our initiative system, the dynamics are a little bit different than in other places. So this talk's gonna to explain to you the behind the scenes machinations of how all of that works. So this talk is called Qualifying Your Washington State Initiative for Under Half a Million Dollars. Please welcome Gabe Meyer to the stage. You ever feel like government is just slow? Status quo is the status quo for a reason, and I hate to break it to you, but Olympia isn't set up for change. In this, I have worked on many campaigns and many initiatives and helped people like you build their power and do an initiative. I believe in initiatives. That's why we have initiatives, because the power of the people, the people can rise up it's a, it's a way to have direct, direct democracy, and it's a way to change any law in our state. You know what? People think it's hard, 
$500,000 is not that much when you're talking about political fundraising. It's really about the know-how and the planning and finding an issue that's publicly popular but politically difficult. There's been lots of po uh, positive initiatives. We've had marriage equality, we've had minimum wage, we've had uh, gun responsibility and um, marriage equality and getting big money out of politics. I wanted to say there is an easy way to qualify. Paul Allen wrote a few checks equaling $1.3 million. That went to a firm, and now we have a new law protecting endangered species. Great. But I also want to say that I worked for Initiative I-735, where we spent about 400000 and we raised it as we went because we used the power of organizing. We got Washington State on record against Citizens United by going to the people. So think of all the possibilities. We could have police accountability. We could have gender equity. We could have lessening our, our climate change. We could have banning assault weapons, single-payer health care, better pay for teachers, voting rights, all kinds of ideas that we all know should be law that Olympia can't seem to get done through an initiative. Free college, that's another great idea. So think about things that should be a long time coming, things that have built-in constituencies, that have high support from regular people, I'll talk about polling a little later, and that are easy to understand, they can't be too wonky. Unfortunately, Tim Iman has made a career on this populist anti-tax message that makes it hard to get funding in Olympia, but the good news is, recently, we have lots of progressive initiatives, and we can do it. So you need four things. You need a little bit of time. It takes two to three years. You need to build a coalition that's broad, that's around the state, that's diverse. You need a well-crafted law that equals a good ballot title, and you also need the money. So you build the power to get those things by good planning, by good polling, and polling leads to money. I want to say that real clear. Um, by getting your coalition together. The money will come. Like I said, I, the first campaign I worked on, we raised 400000 This last campaign, I, we raised $1.4 million. And that's because we did the work to build the coalition. And also, but I want to make the point that the power of organizing lets it go to the people. Volunteers are the least expensive ways to qualify your initiative. You need 350,000 signatures, and you can do that if you build staff and build networks across the state. You can also do in-house signature gathering. You know, paid firms charge two to five dollars per signature, but you can do it in-house for about a buck a signature and supplement your volunteers. So I want to tell you, initiatives are such an opportunity in the state. We can have people power, it's direct democracy. Those three to five years, that's a lot faster than things they've been working on in Olympia for a long time. And you can do it, you can be involved. There's lots of change opportunities around initiatives, and they win. The, all you need is a coalition, money, lists, and the know-how. The sky's the limit on the changes we can make. Now, it'll take me more than five minutes to say how you win at the election, 
But this is about initiatives, and the qualifying initiative, when it's people-powered, also builds for the campaign and lets you win. So the most recent initiative I worked on is Initiative 940, that's de-escalate Washington. We just qualified, we raised the money, and I love to talk to anybody about any ideas they have about initiatives, just follow up with me. Thank you. How many of you came to Ignite 34 last Ignite? So, you all voted for two of the talks in this first half. Uh, you voted for the first talk you heard, Savannah Clark talking about neurotic dogs, our audience vote. The other talk you voted for, because it was a tie, is this next one you're gonna hear, which I'm very glad that you chose. It's a really good talk. I think you're gonna like it. The title of this talk, How One Guy Can Make You Less Racist. Please welcome Mariam Hosseini to the stage. Storytelling, quite cliche word used a lot these days. Data storytelling, visual storytelling. So naturally, I'm here to tell you a story. This is Mahmoud. He's 67, and he's from Iran. When Mahmoud tells people that he's from Iran, this is what people usually think of. Desert, camels, heavily covered women, and who can forget the beloved Ayatollah, right? Iran happens to be a little bit different. More colorful, more resilient, and the Iran that he remembers is a land of beautiful poetry, Cyrus, Hafiz, Rumi, beautiful mountains nestled outside of Tehran, and really resilient and remarkable badass women. He's had an, he's had an interesting life. So this is him as a cover band, Beatles cover band, called Happy Boys, where he was quite a ladies' man, and one would say quite talented. Overnight, Mahmoud's life is completely changed to this. 1979 revolution happens in Iran, and he goes from living this incredibly Western and progressive life to one that is quite different. So imagine waking up tomorrow morning and everything that you've come to know has drastically changed. The world is also not incredibly friendly to Iranians, so not only his life changed overnight, he also comes to know that the place that he has been calling home for all his life perhaps is not the place where he wants to raise his children. Oh, and there's a hiccup. Not only the revolution happens, but there's an eight-year war with Iraq that costs nearly a million lives in Iran. So he spends his life for those eight years moving his children from bomb shelter to bomb shelter and country to country. On this very chair, he gets the news that he's finally going to the land of opportunity. It has taken 14 years of his life and a lot of hard work. So he puts all his belongings into this crappy little Samsonite. Imagine your identification, your immunization records, everything that you are in one bag. And off you go to a place that you have no effing idea is gonna be like. Fetching picture of his passport, right? Quite good looking dude. He takes his 10-year-old and his bratty 16-year-old leaves his wife behind and sets sail for Salt Lake City, Utah, the most exotic place on earth. <laughs> There's a little bit of a twist in the plot, which is the America and the Baywatch that he'd watched on TV was not quite the America that he set sail for. But he arrives. He arrives and he realizes that his skills as a successful construction engineer are not transferable. 
He has to work in a t-shirt factory. He has to work as a cable guy. And on top of that, everything that he's come to build as a human being and as an adult is no longer there. And more twists. 2001, September 11 happens. So the life that he left behind, war, revolution, and now is a world that he has to live in with Islamophobia, where he has to protect his son from discrimination because he speaks a different way or his name happens to be Hosseini. So more, Donald Trump, thank you very much. Muslim ban. So as you can imagine, his life is a symptomatic obstacle, one after another after another. And this man manages to smile, remain resilient, give back to his community, and encourage his children to foster this incredible relationship with the people that they know. Because the America that he came for, he still believes in. Why am I telling you a story? Because I actually believe in it. I happen to work in the world of communication and I believe it is the way you break the barriers. Beyond political propaganda, beyond religious boundaries, it is the way to connect with the people that you know. So why am I telling you Mahmoud's story? His is no more unique than any other immigrant story you've ever heard. But the twist is, I think Mahmoud's gonna make you less racist. The reason why is because not only he's resilient, he also happens to be my father, who's here in the audience tonight. <laughs> and he came here tonight thinking that he was seeing a work presentation. And this is my ultimate homage to my father, everything that he's worked hard for, and my hope that you walk away tonight taking the time to remember his story and remembering that even one story and one guy can make you less racist. Thank you. Now, Seattle has some fucking awesome parks. But I bet none of you have been to all of them, except one of you who's going to give the next talk. The title of her talk, unsurprisingly, is what I learned by visiting every park in Seattle. Please welcome Linnea Westerlin to the stage. My obsession with parks started nine years ago when I was home with a new baby, and oh my god, you guys, I just needed to get out of the house. So I had an idea. What if I tried to visit all the parks in Seattle in one year? So I set up a blog to track my progress, and I headed out. Well, one year ended up stretching into four. One of the reasons is, it turns out Seattle has more than 400 parks. So this was probably a little ambitious. I also had my kid along with me, and then about halfway into the project, twins arrived. But the, <laughs> But the more I explored, the more I realized that Seattle has an absolutely amazing park system. And I bet it's one of the reasons that you live here. So I just want to take a little bit of time and tell you what I learned visiting every Seattle park. First, for some perspective, more than 11% of all the land in Seattle is parks. And 96% of Seattleites live within a half mile of a park. More than 80 of our parks were designed or suggested more than 100 years ago by the famous Olmsted Brothers firm. This is the same firm that designed New York Central Park, and Volunteer Park in Seattle is probably their best-known design here. 
Well, one thing I learned is that Seattle has some parks that were built in areas that were previously dangerous. Gasworks Park was a gas plant for 50 years before it was turned into a park in 1975. It's hard to believe it right now, but at the time it was highly controversial. There were many people who felt you should never mix a former industrial site with a recreation area. Well, we've also built parks both over the freeway, like Freeway Park, and underneath the freeway, like I-5 Colonnade. This is a spot in East Lake that was previously just fenced off, and instead it was turned into um, one of the country's first urban mountain biking courses. Well, some of our best parks are secret parks, and this is a great park up on Queen Anne that almost nobody knows about. What I love about secret parks is that you can find things like science fiction-inspired art and a lot of other interesting things if you're just willing to explore. Well, we've even built parks the dump. Uh, what could have just been wasted space around the new North Transfer Station instead was turned into a park with a playground and picnic areas, rain garden, adult exercise equipment. And of course, everybody knows Discovery Park. But what a lot of people don't realize is that this almost didn't become a park at all. The Army offered to sell us this land for a dollar in the 1930s, and the city turned it down. It was decades before we got another chance at that amazing piece of land. Seattle also has some pretty useless public spaces, like this official city park in Magnolia. <laughs> I visited a lot of triangles of grass and traffic medians that didn't even have a bench to sit in, but they were called official parks. I think that's a bit of a stretch. One of my favorite things about this project was going to some amazing viewpoints like this park in West Seattle, uh, where you can see water and mountain and city views. I also really like viewpoints because I feel like they give you a chance to see our city from a new perspective. Well, I've spent a lot of time thinking, what is it about our parks that have such an impact on us? Well, parks are gathering places. They draw us out into nature and they invite us to linger. Parks also give us an excuse to play. There's so many fun things we can do in our parks. For example, at Woodland Park near Green Lake, you can do everything from BMX biking to lawn bowling. And parks are also equalizers. People of all backgrounds can enjoy our public spaces. And I think that Alki Beach in West Seattle on a summer day is one of the best places to see just the diversity and vitality of our city's residents. Parks are also an escape and a respite from city life. Can you imagine our city without outdoor places where we can go fishing, take a walk, or watch a sunset? And finally, parks are centers of our communities. One of my favorite places to witness this is in Occidental Square, where when the city added some colorful bistro tables and chairs years ago, it kicked off a total revitalization of this space. It's now like an outdoor living room for this community with everything from food trucks, a children's lending library, outdoor games, live music. Well, I've now been to all the parks in Seattle, along with a lot of other kinds of small public spaces and regional parks, and I recently wrote the first guidebook to Seattle parks in 40 years. And thank you. And as part of that project, I returned again to 120 of my favorite parks to do the research and take the photographs for my book. So you can say I spent a lot of time in our parks. And what I've learned most is that parks are a really important part of our lives here in Seattle. And what I, the reason I do this is I want to inspire people to explore and to spend more time outdoors in our parks. I'm still out exploring, so find me on social media and tell me about a new park in your neighborhood. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now, some of you may know that Doug Engelbart invented the computer mouse. 
What some of you may not know is that one of the theories that he based his work on was recognizing that we have four limbs, and we should be using all of them, maybe, in how we design computer-human interaction for how we interact with computers. So Doug Engelbart, who's no longer alive, I think will be very proud of this next talk, which is titled, How to Mouse with Your Toes. Please welcome Elizabeth Nelson to the stage. In 2018, our lives are digital, but our bodies are still flesh and blood. So what do you do when using a computer mouse is hard or it hurts? Drop kick it out the window? If you remember back in 1986, <laughs> remember that movie about the whales, Star Trek IV? When Scotty said computer to his mouse, we all laughed. Today I can ask Siri for a bedtime story. But what if you need to do something more complex, like write code or edit complex documents or solve beautiful equations? Assistive technologies like voice recognition easily fall down. Back in the year 2000, I was lucky to be a PhD student at Stanford's Marine Station, Monterey, which happens to be next door to the Monterey Bay Aquarium where Star Trek IV was filmed. <laughs> I wanted to throw my mouse out the window. Fortunately, I threw it on the floor and did not hit any of the photogenic megafauna. I've now moused with my toes for 18 years, and I'd like to teach you. So, how to mouse with your toes? It's really easy. First, set both buttons to be a left click, so you can just stomp on it. You don't have to differentiate. <laughs> Just for a little while, while you're learning, you'll quickly get the hang of it. You can set both back. Next, take your socks off. You need to stick to the mouse a little bit. Next, throw it on the floor. Feels great. And finally, stomp on your mouse, and you're off and running. So as you get better at it, you're going to want to enhance your mousing. So first, ergonomics. You're going to want to observe 100% superior ergonomics, so you want to lower your chair so that you have a right angle between your left knee and the floor, and you have a right angle with your arms, as the picture shows. So once you've got ergonomics set, you're going to want to reduce large motions, because if you've got two monitors, you can't pick up your mouse to move it all that distance. So one monitor. You want a fabric mouse pad to have some friction, so you've got a little bit of resistance. You want to have your laptop closed, so you aren't tempted to forget what you've learned and use your trackpad. And you're going to want to use your space bar for scrolling, because moving a mouse long distances hurts. Next, you're going to want to upgrade your wardrobe, because you can't wear nylons. But fortunately, tights have come back into style. And you're going to want to get some nice slip-ons, because people sort of look at you silly if you walk around with your shoes off. So this is the slide for if you want to how to take a photo. And we'll go on and talk about nuances. First, let me tell you it was great to graduate with that PhD and be able to buy an optical mouse, because those old-style trackballs, they get carpet fuzzies in them. <laughs> Next nuance. 
if you work at a tech company with lots of really smart people, they're going to want to show you something. <laughs> and if you have someone come into your office and really want to borrow your mouse, you need to keep some alcohol, alcohol wipes on here. No problem. Next, practice. The best way to practice is to play soccer. If you can steal a soccer ball from a kid, you can mouse with your toes. <laughs> Unfortunately, I lost this one to my nephew, Eli. Next, you're going to have extra time in your day. If you're taking your hand off your keyboard to go grab your mouse about once a minute, you're losing 16 minutes a day. That's like two snooze buttons. <laughs> and you'll have extra time to draw art with your toes. That's my mom's bird. She really liked the hummingbird talk earlier. Last, I'd like to say thanks to the many, many people who helped me, both figuring this out and with scholarships. And a final reminder from one of those people who helped. This last picture that'll come up, remember to stand up and look out your window, because the other graduate students might have taken your bike diving. Fortunately, they gave it a, a life preserver. <laughs> they wanted to do wheelies underwater. So look out your window, not just throw your mouse. Thank you. someone loans you their, their mouse, now you know some good questions to ask about what they've done with it. Okay, next up, how to not be the least secure gazelle. Please welcome Zach Cohn to the stage. Thanks. 164 million, 152 million, 68 million. My name is Zachary Cohn and I'm here from the internet. And these are how many email addresses and passwords were leaked when LinkedIn, Adobe, and Dropbox were hacked. The sad truth of it is every single person in this room has already been compromised. Don't believe me? Fine. Take out your phones right now. I want everyone in this room to take out your phones right now. And I want you to go to this website, haveibeenpwned.com. <laughs> now, while you do this, this is run by a security researcher who aggregates databases of hacked websites and lets you search uh, the records for your email address. So that's what we're going to do right now. Put in your email address, click on the Pwned button, and let's see what comes up. Maybe it's Tumblr, maybe it's Kickstarter, maybe it's your adult friend finder account. But this is what the results are going to look like when they do come up. It's going to be the name of the company, a little bit of information about what happened, and what data was compromised. Now, you can go cry over this stuff later. You can come look back at me now. Uh, what's important to understand is not what's in your Tumblr account, but where else you used that password. Because you see, the attackers don't really care about you specifically. They go, they find these databases of 10 million email addresses and password combinations, and they try them everywhere they can think of. They're not looking for you, they're looking for an easy target. They're looking for the slowest gazelle. And that's what you don't want to be. <clears throat> so if they manage to even get into your email account, then you're super in trouble. Because think about those friendly little, I forgot my password links. It sends an email to you, and you click on the reset my password 
link. And now, because the attacker has access to your email, they just changed your password on any other account that you have on the internet. Luckily, there's a really easy thing we can do to prevent all this. All you need to do is have a different, unique password for every single account you've ever had on the entire internet. <laughs> now that sounds pretty hard to remember, so don't. Instead, use a piece of software called a password manager. What these do is you type in a single master password to unlock it, and it saves all of your accounts and all of your passwords for you. Now, when I first heard about these, I was pretty anxious. I was like, well, what if it gets hacked? Well, the truth is, as we already found out, you've already been hacked. So what we've been doing isn't working. And this does work. So this is what we need to switch to. Thank you. So uh, there's a lot of options out there. My favorite is one called 1Password. Now, I don't work for them. I have no financial relationship with them. I'm just a happy customer. And so that's what I'm going to teach you all to use. Uh, so what you're going to do this weekend on Saturday or Sunday is download 1Password, set it up, and it's going to ask you to create a master password. Now, this thing should be long, it should be memorable, and it should be easy to type, because you're going to be typing it a lot. So there's some bad passwords out there, and there's also some ways to make good ones. Good passwords might be an obscure line from a song, or a sentence from a book that you really like, or an indisputable fact. The important thing is to make it long, not necessarily complicated and hard to type. Turns out that doesn't actually work. Do not forget this password. You only have one to remember ever for the rest of your life, so don't forget it. Capitalization matters, punctuation matters. Don't forget it. So when you're ready to start changing passwords and moving them over to 1Password, this software comes with a password generator that automatically creates random, unique, really hard to type and guess passwords, so you can have different passwords for every account. But you've probably got a lot of accounts, so it's really important not to get overwhelmed. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna make a list of your email accounts, your financial accounts, and your identity accounts, like Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. And this Saturday, you're gonna take 90 minutes, download one password, set it up, and just work on setting those accounts up. If you finish within the 90 minutes, get up, go take a walk, have a gluten-free croissant. If you didn't get all the way through all your accounts on the list, that's okay. Set up 60 minutes next weekend and get to it then. For anything that wasn't on that list, Change it when you log in. Over the course of a month or two, you'll find that you've hit pretty much every major account that you have on the internet. So with this advice, you won't be safe on the internet, but at least you will no longer be the slowest and least secure gazelle out there. If you, <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> uh, if you have any questions, hit me up on Twitter. I'm happy to help. Otherwise, have a great evening. Next up, we all know about how important emergency response is. We all depend on it. We know when these tragedies happen in the world, there's all these dedicated people who drop everything to go help, but we don't often understand the reality of what their lives are like. So this next talk will answer some of those questions. The title of this talk is My Life as a Superhero, Myths About Disaster Response. Please welcome Chris Shea to the stage. Sometimes, when I'm not being a complete ass, my life, my wife, <laughs> also my life, <laughs> likes to say that I'm a superhero. Now, I know what you're thinking, she's just being sweet, right? But she 
bought me this t-shirt. Not only that, it's not just her. Some of my coworkers are also introducing me that way. It's like I'm a mashup of Captain America and Mother Teresa. Reality is, though, I'm not a superhero. And I know you guys are already thinking it, so I'm, I'm really not that egotistical either. <laughs> um, but I am the director of disaster response for World Concern up in Shoreline, and my job is greatly romanticized. More about that later, but that made me think, what are some of the just myths uh, that people have formed about disasters. So I've got three statements. Here's the first one. I want you to call out myth or fact when we read it. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, disasters affect everyone equally. What if I led you with the wrong slide? No, it's true. This is a myth. 80% of the world's poor live in disaster-prone areas. And while you and I might have savings accounts or we might have um, other coping strategies, for them, just the disaster shift can cause them to be looking at food for tomorrow. Let's look at a tale of two different storms. This is Houston, right after Hurricane Harvey. We know 200,000 families were affected and uh, $175 billion worth of um, damage. This slide is from Bangladesh. Bangladesh, we had a very similar storm, only 120,000 families affected and only less than $2 billion in damage. But this is the real deal. What did you do to my slide, Zach? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I can't blame you. Domestic aid to Bangladesh versus Texans. So on the left, 8.4% of their monthly income. On the right, for Texas, 15.6% of their daily income. Honestly, that means two times the support, if just because you live in America, from your government. Okay, second one. Donations of relief goods are rarely helpful after a disaster. Myth or fact? Ooh, mixed call there. Mixed call. It's a fact. See, the reality is that a lot of donations after a disaster are not actually related to the needs of the people. Who remembers Sandy Hook Elementary, the tragic shooting? Do you remember there was a campaign to donate teddy bears? An example of some of the 65,000 teddy bears that were shipped to Newtown, Connecticut, a town of only a population of 28,000 people. The town spent a fortune on managing, organizing, giving away and eventually incinerating these teddy bears. This is after Hurricane Sandy. These are honest donations from people of, of clothing and other supplies for victims of Hurricane Sandy that are sitting in a basketball court never to be used. So the problem is, a lot of those things can be purchased locally much cheaper, right? Third one, emergency response professionals play the main role in life-saving after disaster. Mixed fact. Ooh, toss up there again. It's a myth. Like I was saying before, I'm not, the, I'm not the hero. After Nepal earthquake, you remember the big Nepal earthquake, 2,424 search and rescue professionals, 133 rescue dogs. Two weeks later, they had rescued 16 people. That's right, one rescue for every 140 professionals. Most were, were done by volunteers like these guys right here. 95% of people after a disaster are rescued by neighbors and family. These are the real heroes. That's why when I work with World Concern, a lot of my focus is on mobilizing local disaster response. So I'm not doing the other things. I'm not rescuing people. I'm not you know, delivering unnecessary goods. Often what I do looks like this. This is in Haiti. We were doing a multi-agency. You can see three different agencies here. We're working on identifying what are the needs of people and how can we mobilize the resources that already exist to get where they're most needed. Really, it's a lot about coordination. You see, 
I sometimes describe my job as flying for 40 hours in coach, then sitting in four hours of traffic every day just to attend meetings all day long in the heat where we talk about things we don't know how to solve. As I said, coordination, honestly, it's a lot more Dilbert than Daredevil, right? So what does that mean for you? Well, I would challenge you, if you're looking at how to help in a disaster response, start looking at organizations that don't needlessly ship goods that they're not prepared for, that also focus on building the capacity of local organizations for their own response. My name's Chris. You can send me a message on Twitter if you have any questions. Thank you very much. Now, we know in this region that one of the wonders that we have, as Linnea's talk expressed in a way, all the parks that we have here, we live in a wonderland of natural resources. But there are some notions about trees and lumber that are antiquated. And we should get an update on how that world and that lifestyle works. So this next talk is going to do that for us. The title of this talk is Not Your Father's Lumberjacks. Please welcome Seth Zuckerman to the stage. So last summer I took a job in forestry and I was getting back into the field after about 10 years and things had really changed since the last time I'd been involved. Not that I'd started out in the days of Paul Bunyan and, and Babe the Blue Ox, uh, although my 13-year-old uh, likes to think probably that these two dudes were my colleagues when I started a couple decades ago. But I actually thought that uh, in the Northwest that logging was still like sometimes a great notion. You know the Ken Kesey book set on the Oregon coast with the Stamper family, big burly guys, and they were always guys with chainsaws coming right up next to a tree and cutting it down. But it turns out, uh, before, I go, before I go on though, I want to say a little bit about logging. So a lot of people think that logging always has to look like this. But fortunately for those of us who care about where our wood and paper products come from, there are other ways of doing it. And the nonprofit that I manage, the Northwest Natural Resource Group, helps people log in other ways, ways that leave the forest looking like this. So there's clean water, carbon storage to protect the climate, uh, opportunities for recreation, and even beauty. And we, um, thank you. Thank you. And we certify landowners who manage that way uh, to the standards of the Forest Stewardship Council. There's more than 90 landowners in Oregon and Washington whom we certify with over 150,000 acres. And the water that came from your faucet here in Seattle today came from one of those forests, the Cedar River watershed. But back to logging. I thought that um, logging was something that happened with the chainsaw and a human going mano a mano with a tree. But what I learned last summer when I started working at, North, at this, uh, this nonprofit is that it's actually a lot more like the Lorax. And, you know, the Dr. Seuss book, The Onceler and the Truffula Trees. And that was actually my first introduction to logging when I was a kid, was to, to read that book. Um, and one of the most alarming things in that book was the super axe hacker that can cut down four trees with one smacker. And the thing that I learned when I came to the Northwest Natural Resource Group is that uh, the, the super axe hacker has actually come to life and is stalking the forests of the Northwest. I greeted this news with some, some kind of alarm. Now, this super axe hacker takes several forms. It can be called a feller buncher, or in this case, a harvester. Um, and however it is, it's a, it's a large machine uh, with person driving around in a cab, pretty big, pretty expensive, that comes up to a tree, 
reaches out, grabs the trunk of the tree with its, with its arms, and slices it off at the bottom. But the dirty secret is that watching these machines work is absolutely mesmerizing. So I went to a job that our, our nonprofit was managing out near Hood Canal, and I sat in the cab of one of these harvesters, and these next few images are for, from that trip, uh, and I was just absolutely, uh, I, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. So this machine pulls the log through, through its jaws, slices off the branches, and then it has to cut it up into log lengths that can be hauled down the highway and sent to the mill. But how does it know where to cut the log, right? The geeks among us will appreciate that it remembers the shape of the last 200 logs that it's cut up. And uh, it optimizes the place to cut those logs into 10s or 12s or 16s, or in this case, 26s, so as to get the best revenue for the lander when it gets to the mill. And then it leaves uh, those logs in piles in the forest. Now, it used to be that you'd have to uh, have a person out there wrap a wire rope or a cable around it and pull it and so that it could get pulled out by a, a caterpillar tractor. Now someone drives up to it, different jaws grab onto the pile of logs and haul it to the landing where the, um, where the logs are then hauled to the mill. Now the other piece of good news that alleviated my alarm somewhat is that those tools can be used for good or less good. So you can still use a harvester or a freller buncher to leave a lot of the trees standing, as we like to do. This is a forest owned by King County. This is the other one that's owned by, uh, that I visited near Hood Canal. And so there's, just because it's a super axe hacker doesn't mean there's a problem. But you might think there's some romance that's lost, right? The logger covered in pitch and sawdust, you know, who maybe finds some wild mushrooms and brings them home for dinner. But, but consider this, this, this fact. In the, since the early 90s, the number of people killed in logging, logging accidents in the United States has dropped by nearly a half. And the amount of log logging that has decreased by just over 20%. And so if we have to give up some romance and some mushrooms so that more people can come home at night to their families, I'd say that's a pretty good trade-off. Thank you very much. Good job. Very good. So I'm, I'm a writer by trade, so language is important to me. And profanity and the vulgar, what's called vulgar language is also a fascinating thing about culture and assumptions about which words we should use or not or when or whatever. And it's notable to me that tonight the only vulgar, profane word that was uttered was by me. <laughs> and, and I regret it. I don't think it's usually necessary, at least not in a situation like this. But I'm very pleased and honored to introduce our next talk, which is, I think, a, a meditation about not only language and profanity and what that means, but about how we think about expression and language and communication itself. So the title of our next talk, and it's our last talk of the night, and an honorable one, I love profanity, the surprisingly difficult decision to remove one word from my book. Please welcome Ignite alumni Jeremy Kays to the stage. Hi, I'm Jer and I love profanity. Tonight I'm inviting you to take a new look at the words we find offensive to see what we can learn about ourselves and our culture. As a writer, I use curse words all the time to build character and set the mood. It's the capsation of vocabulary. 
I have a handful of curse words adding flavor to my graphic novel, but tonight I'm going to tell the story of the one that doesn't belong. Now, when I talk about profanity in American English, I like to use these four categories. Religion, hygiene, sex, and groups of people. These are versatile words that have several different functions, but focusing on these categories gives us a chance to uh, focus on their primary definition and their origin. Now, let's begin with a puzzle. These words of Judeo-Christian origin were once considered quite rude to be spoken in faithful company. But like a lot of the words we're going to discuss tonight, their perceived offense has changed over time. In this case, our societies become much more diverse. One culture's profane concepts don't always translate to the cultures around them. If we want to talk about our truly dirty words, we look to our inescapable bodily functions. These words are quite vulgar, but they're also often the common vernacular for their meaning. This makes sense for a society that's gotten much cleaner over time. Consider the word louse, which was once an insult that meant a contemptible person. It doesn't quite carry the same impact now that we're significantly less plagued by lice. While we're becoming more diverse and cleaner, we still struggle with our sexuality. The entire vocabulary of sex is plagued by negativity. We say things are dirty, naughty, or nasty. These words for sexual body parts and functions are some of our most uncomfortable. A lot of them can double as labels for each other, which will bring us to our fourth category. Uh, and to do that, we have a responsibility to address one of our most horrifying words. I've had little argument suggesting that I'm sorry, I apologize. No. I have had, had a little argument suggesting that this uh, word is the most profane in American English. Its destructive power is deeply woven into our own history of slavery, uh, intolerance, and, and segregation. But let's compare that to a couple of other words you might not immediately recognize. This first word, meaning to cheat or be cheated, doesn't really register as derogatory in America because we're quite removed from the Roma or Gypsy people who'd find it offensive. The second word, a common pejorative for the mentally handicapped, we've seen become less acceptable with time as we've spent much more energy uh, paying attention to mental health issues. When we combine our views of sex and each other, we discover words like these. How afflicted is our sexuality that we have an insult for someone that enjoys it? The second word is far more insidious. It is remarkably acceptable to use this word to label a masculine woman or a feminine man, exposing the great sin of American culture, the eschewing of your assigned gender roles. Which brings us to the star of our show. When I was growing up in Virginia, I became desensitized to this word. One of its functions is to shame us effeminate straight males. Our masculinity was so threatened that boys like me were expected to man up or get beat down. It wasn't until this unmanly boy from Virginia became an artist in Seattle that I'd find community and safety among people who identified with words like these. So why do we use these slurs? Because they are weapons. Weapons are tools to do harm. We reach for them when we are weak and scared. We believe they bring us safety, but that kind of safety only comes from community. 
Do these words belong in our art? Absolutely. If we avoid these words for our own comfort, we're gonna struggle to discuss the complicated, contentious issues that they represent. No one has ever complained about the word I used in my book, but what struck me was, that, was people's reaction to my book. It's a cupcake, an uplifting story that made people happy. When we use profanity in our art, we have an obligation to, to use it to frame a conversation. And when we fail to do that, we stick a chili pepper in a cupcake. I love profanity, but that's why I chose to remove one word from my book. Thank you very much. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Ignite Seattle 35 took place on March 1st at the SIF Cinema Egyptian. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Ignite Seattle 36 is coming up on May 17th. You can hear the full event on our website, kuow.org slash speakersforum. And stay current with us by subscribing to our podcast. Tune in again soon. <laughs>